Before we start the episode today, this episode is with Stefan Simkovics, the first guest that I didn't already know. Stefan found out about the podcast from Christy in Vermont, and he messaged me, and we made an episode happen. And we're going to be bringing out an article that he wrote as well. This is our second remote interview, so the audio sounds a little different than the first episodes. Also, our magazines have been printed and shipped. We're mailing them out now. So if you'd like a copy of The Seasonals Quarterly Volume 1, go to theseasonals.com slash shop and pick them up. Or you could save some money and get a whole subscription. If you put podcast in the comments when you buy, I will personally put a seasonal sticker in with your magazine and mail it directly to you. Now, if my voice hasn't put you asleep, let's get to the episode. Being around people, being good at what you're good at, you know, feeling involved, feeling needed, keeps your eye on the prize. And and being a seasonal, you know, lifeguard or a seasonal job anywhere, you know, it puts you in that environment where you're around people, you're contributing. This is the Seasonals Podcast, a show where we talk to people living the seasonal lifestyle. We take an in-depth look at the decision points they've encountered along the way. I'm here with Stefan Simkovics. That's right, right? Yep. Nailed it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, so this is um, the first time we've gotten to actually talk. You've emailed me a couple times about listening to the podcast. And you had an incredible story about being a lifeguard in San Diego. So my first question is, you know, how did, how did you start in the seasonal life? Well, I was getting out of the Navy in uh, May of 2014, and, you know, I personally just wanted to do something for myself. I, you know, my last command in the Navy, I was behind a desk, and I was in a room with no wall or no windows. So I really wanted to do something for myself. You know, I always seen the city of San Diego lifeguards on the beach. Um, it's a civil service job out in San Diego, so if you do reach a permanent status year-round, when you come out of the seasonal round, you know, you have retirement benefits and very much like a firefighter and a, a policeman, you, you know, you go to a lifeguard academy. So this is something I wanted to embrace. I was never a waterman before. I never surfed. You know, I was decent at swimming. I learned how to swim in college. But this is kind of something I was breaking new ground in. And it was something very fascinating to me um, to be a lifeguard, not just, you know, it wasn't like a lifeguard, you know, in New Jersey or at a swimming pool. It was a lifeguard for the city of San Diego. And our beaches can be very ruthless at times and very unforgiving. And for, you know, us to be kind of subject matter experts in that realm, you know, that that really attracted me. You know, I've always kind of worked in controlled environments not not much danger, but this was my opportunity when I left the Navy to kind of do something for myself, uh, start from ground zero, have an open mindset, uh, be willing to learn, more importantly, be willing to fail, and see where we go from there. In an article you sent me, which I really think is going to be in our second issue of the magazine coming out, uh, you talk about the preparation for it, the qualifications, or the, it, it's a test really, right? You have to, there's a lot of running and then swimming and to really finish it and, you know, prove that you can do it. It's a lot of, uh, using the skills of knowing the water, being able to read it and all that stuff. 
Yeah. So the culminating tests uh, for the city of San Diego, you know, you want to be ocean qualified. Um, so all the first year guards will come in on one day, um, preferably before I think Memorial Day, and we will do three tests in that one day. And those tests are called the green wall, the mile mile and the 500 meter swim. You have to get a certain time on each respective swim in that one day in order to become an ocean qualified guard. If you don't get that those times on that day, you're not ocean qualified and you will have to stay on the bay. Uh, for, for pretty much the whole summer until they they, re, they hold those qualification tests again. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, the starts off with La Jolla, the, uh, the green wall. It's just called the green wall because it took it takes place next to a green wall. And that's a run, swim, run. And you uh, run to Scripps Pier north. And if you're familiar with San Diego, you're just basically running towards a pier. You get in the water. And as I learned from the Lifeguard Academy, there's always fixed permanent rip currents uh, along piers and jetties. So if you're smart, you stay close to the pylons of the pier. A lot of surfers also use this to get out, you know, beyond the surf zone because water, you know, water, oceans don't, waves, sorry, don't really break by piers. So you, you get shot out by the pier, you go around the pier, you swim back, you hit the sand and you, you run back. Um, and you, you finish line. I believe the time cap on that is 16 minutes or less to pass. Um, and then the kind of the culmination of that test is the mile mile. You start at the Mission Beach main tower. You run down to the South Mission Beach tower. You get in the water. You go around the buoy, and then you swim back to the start line to the main to the Mission Beach main tower. And to go back to your original question, you really want to kind of know the water. Um, when you're making that mile swim back, you know, you don't want to be too far inland or else the waves are going to crash on you. You don't want to be too far out. And you also, you know, you have to kind of do like a water polo style freestyle. You know, no one's really wearing goggles. I, I never wore goggles when I do that test. So I'm taking four or five strokes and I'm looking up because the last thing you want to do is swim out West, swim East. And then when you get to the turnaround buoy at the end of the qualification test, the last thing you want to do is swim towards the buoy. Like maybe you, maybe you swam toward it, but you're 25 meters off. So now you're extending your time to complete that test. And, you know, when you make a mistake like that, or you don't have the knowledge, um, or maybe you just don't have it mentally that day, you know, that can cost you, you know, your ocean qual. And the time for that I'll always remember is 36 minutes or less. And depending on the day, you know, some of the best swimmers will get that time. And like some of them on a good day, they'll get it in less than 30. How many people were doing the qualification when you did it? Um, I would say roughly 60 or 70 new lifeguards, depending on the hiring year. So it is, it does kind of have a little triathlon um, theme to it. Once you hit the water, um, you know, people are kicking, they're flailing, you know, you can get, you can catch one to the face. Um, you know, you're, you're diving under waves, you're negotiating that. You know, it, it kind of is a little, you know, if you go look beyond it, it, it shows you a little bit of adversity. You know, it's cold, it's overcast most of the time when it's gone done. You're not allowed to wear a wetsuit. You know, most people wear, wear jammies, uh, jammers or a Speedo. I always wore a Speedo to reduce my drag. And so, yeah, you know, you, you all take off, you're all hungry, you're all eager to get that ocean fall swim and the adrenaline is very high, but you know, it's like one of those things, you know, when you hit the water and, you know, a big wave takes you four feet back, you know, and you you swim you know, three feet and then a wave hits you and you, you go back 10 feet. It's like, Oh, what am I going to do? You know, am I going to, 
am I going to sit here and complain or be like, Oh, this is, you know, not good. Or, you know, you're going to face the adversity and just keep charging. You know, it also happens too. If you, you know, you might get kicked in the face, you know, or someone might swim over you. It's kind of like a little test of adversity. Um, that's kind of the way I saw it too, because, but that's just the nature of the job. The nature of the job is unpredictability. You know, you'll never know what that ocean's going to do. You'll never know how it's going to react. You know, it'll have flash rip currents, which will appear out of nowhere. So you have to get very good. And the beauty of the job is you can be a first-year lifeguard or a career 30-year lifeguard, and you'll still learn something. You'll never, you'll never be a master of it. You'll never be able to read it. You'll never perfect it. It sounds like a great test of not just physicality, but also your mental state as well. Because if if it's a bad day and you're just not making anywhere and you're like, Oh, this sucks. You, but you only have that one chance. There's only that one day until the end of the summer. Yeah. And there was that, you know, you do these tests, you do all of them in the lifeguard Academy and you know, the lifeguard Academy takes place March, March, April, May. And I remember one Academy after mine, it was like, there was some really bad weather. And I think half the Academy class failed the, failed the mile mile like just to swell and elements and water and you know some people in the class are kind of young you know the you know lifeguard community attracts people of all ages so we also had that going for us that half the academy was kind of jittery and spreading the rumors because of it you know like like you said earlier if you fail you fail and you you go to the bay and the bay's cool you know we have a saying you know no one's a no one's above the bay, but you could be over it, you know, in, in terms of sitting on the mission bay. But yeah, it's, there's a lot of the line because the whole goal is to go to the beach. You want to go to the beach, you know, all the actions at the beach. So you want to pass that test, you know, and I think, you know, there is true testament what you said earlier. It is a lot more mental than it is physical. I grew up, I grew up a non-swimmer, you know, I remember I did my first 100 meter in a pool when I was 18 years old and I barely made it, but I learned how to swim in college, like I said earlier, but you know, it's, it's that mental capacity, which, you know, you, you learn to just grip, uh, grit through it. In a normal test or even in the test that you actually did, how what's the percentage of people that fail? I would say my year was pretty good. I think we only had about five or six failures. The lifeguard Academy will weed out those and the lifeguard Academy will will train you and prepare you pretty well. You know, you're not going into the mile, mile, very, uh, you know, unprepared. So the attrition rate is very, is very, uh, small. And you also got to remember, you know, my, my lifeguard sergeant told me, you know, a lot of people could be a lot of different jobs, but not everyone can be a lifeguard. And he said that in a very humble way. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, um, you know, not a lot of people know how to swim. Not a lot of people can handle the elements and the cold of of the ocean every summer because San Diego, I mean, it's, it's cold. People don't realize that I see people jumping all the time thinking it's going to be sunny California and they get, they get a chill to them. So I think since the community attracts watermen and athletic people and, you know, former college swimmers, um, that's a testament and they all, you know, they're familiar with the water. So just go back to your regular, your original question, um, the attrition rate, the, 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 the failure rate is low. Once you get into the job, what's a normal day like? And um, sort of tell me about the community between the lifeguards. So I'll just go, you know, I was stationed in Ocean Beach my second year as a seasonal. Um, I chose the late schedule. I chose a, a schedule called the TR schedule, Tower Relief. And I, I did this schedule because you're not stuck in the same tower all day. Basically, I showed up around noon 
Um, I also picked the schedule to beat the Southern California traffic. So I showed up around, personally, I showed up around noon. Um, then I would go to Tower 2 and relieve that lifeguard for an hour and a half. And then I'd go to Tower 3, relieve that lifeguard for an hour and a half. And then I would go to Tower 6 and relieve that lifeguard for an hour and a half. Other schedules in the lifeguard community have you manning a tower all day. So say, for instance, you, you do Tower 5, your schedule that day is Tower 5 in Ocean Beach. You get on at 9 o'clock. There is a rule that a, a tower lifeguard will only look at the ocean for three hours before they get a break because the eyes and the mind will get tired. The best part about my schedule, since I was tower relief, I got, I got the benefit of going to every tower and working every tower for an hour and a half. And I'm the type of person, there's a ping pong ball, you know, in my head and I can't sit still forever. So it was good to switch schedules. So I would come in and I would do that rotation. I would relieve every tower for an hour and a half. They all, we all get paid lunch breaks. And then at the end of the day, I get my break. Um, and then, so I always like to take advantage of my break. I'd go surfing. I'd go for a paddle. I'd go for a run, swing, run. And then I would, you know, or we have a little sets of weights. So depending on the, the water conditions, I would maybe do some calisthenics. I'm a CrossFitter, so I like to do some CrossFit in the garage at Ocean Beach. And then I go back to Tower 2. I go back to one of the towers that I relieved before. That tower, The tower guard who opened Tower 2 will go home for the day. Um, their day is done. And then I will like stay in Tower 2 until we put it out of service. Once we put Tower 2 out of service, I will close it down. I will lock it up, make sure it's clean, ready to go for the next day. And then I'll walk back to the main tower and then we'll start shutting down the beach process where, you know, we'll take up all the cones that we make our roads for, um, you know, we'll clean and wash all the vehicles. We'll sweep out the tower. Um, really not that bad to do since everyone in the lifeguard community, I've never really had a bad experience with any lazy workers. Everyone that want, it's one of those jobs where you're there because you really, really want to be there. Um, and then at the end of the day, you know, we close when the sun sets, you know, a very gratifying feeling. You got, you know, sand all in you, you know, all over you. You got the, you know, you got the high zinc on your face. You know, you're very satisfied. That's that good tiredness. And then we, we shut down the beach. We give our blanket warning to everyone remaining on the beach. And then we, uh, we say in any water related emergencies, dial 911, the lifeguard service is a 24 hour service. So that was pretty much my day um, as a tower relief guard. It's not too much different if you open a tower and you're assigned to one tower all day also how do they split it up for the people that are in one tower is it are there a couple people taking taking their spot to give them a little break um no there's just there's basically there's two tower relief guards that come on um every day and uh depending on which tower relief schedule you have only one person so there's one tower relief schedule that will go to all the odd towers and then there's another tower relief schedule that will go to all the even towers. Um, so yeah, they're basically they're throughout the day, only two lifeguards are in a respective tower for the majority of the day. You have the lifeguard that opened it and that will be in there for their whole eight hour shift minus their hour and a half break. And you have the lifeguard that will be in there during the hour and a half break the TR guard that will relieve them so they can go on their break and eat and work out. Give me one of your rescue stories. I call this, this rescue, the hug lifeguards in general are very humble, but like I, I like to tell this story cause there was a lot of elements to go into it. 
there was a young couple with kind of like those really bad, really bad uh, boogie boards, like those ones that are made of styrofoam. They're not very big. It just, just it, it screams novice. It screams I'm from a landlocked state and I'm visiting San Diego. Um, yeah, so, my, my grandma's got 30 of them in her, uh, in her garage in Florida. Oh, yeah. Those things just don't make their way into the trash. They just, they just stack up. Um, so this, this one, I was on tower four in ocean beach, California, this girl and her boyfriend were kind of fooling around and there was a rip current that year right off my tower. Um, you know, the, the sand changes every year pretty much. And you know, the, the winter will shift the bottom of the ocean by the beach and create new rip currents. And for those who don't know a rip current, you know, there's no such thing as undertoes or rip tides, you know, nothing's going to pull you under the water as you know, people might say, you know, a rip current is basically the path of least resistance for the water to go back out to the ocean. Um, it's sometimes a surfer's uh, dream because it'll, it'll be a conveyor belt to take them out. And it's a, it's a non-swimmer's nightmare. So basically this couple was hanging out and then a, a kind of a set came in and it, it hit them. They were kind of in the impact zone and this wave comes down and smashes them. And I just see those boards just go flying. Um, and then they kind of get caught in the rip and the rip takes them out. Uh, they were definitely non-swimmers. You know, people, when they go to the ocean thinking they have a flotation, like a boogie board or something like that, they're safe, but they lost their flotation. I, I guarantee they didn't have the little cheesy uh, wrist guards on. So I, I let the main tower that I'm going out and I get there and I see that, you know, the, the boyfriend is holding up his girlfriend's neck in the water. Cause he was kicking and he, she could barely swim and he could barely swim. You know, she was really wide eyed. Um, and she also lost her top. She lost her, you know, her, her, her top, her, her bathing suit top came on loose and uh, that will happen sometimes. And, you know, so now you have a, a situation of rescuing the person and also keeping the dignity and the privacy of the person. Um, it was kind of like the only rescue I've had like that. Um, so I was able to get them both on the board, you know, I, I positioned the girl in between me and her boyfriend on the board to get the right pitch, um, the right weight centered on the board. You don't want to pearl. When you pearl with a rescue board is when the, the tip of the board goes in the water. And now you're going to do the whole up and over thing and somersault. Um, I was able to get them in. You know, I had them help me paddle. We do that a lot to kind of keep their mind off the panic. When we got to shore, she was holding her her top. And, you know, I kind of positioned the rescue board. So like to give her some privacy from the beach, you know, cause you know, you're very vulnerable in that current state. And I could just tell that she was scared and I kind of positioned the board and her boyfriend to kind of cover her, you know, so she give her some decency and give her a little bit of privacy. Um, and you know, she put on her top and she was just so overwhelmed that she gave me a big hug afterwards. And that was it. Um, you know, I went back into my tower and, you know, I had that internal gratification, something that I feel like is rare these days, you know, in terms of social media and people seeking those likes and validations and lifeguard community. I don't think that that exists. So that's why I call that that rescue the hug for me personally, because um, just a lot of different elements came into place. And, you know, she gave me a big hug. She was very very happy. And so was the boyfriend. And that's it. You know, you, you go back to your tower, you don't think anything of it. You know, you may get a, a shout out from the OB main tower, but you know, you don't let it go to your head. You know, it doesn't define you. You know, it's not who you are. And, uh, you know, you go about your day. It's kind of just the nature of the job and that the job like that, you know, when you do things like that, it humbles you, it humbles you a lot. You know, you don't want to go out there and brag or, 
you know, you say you had rescues and stuff like that, but, um, that that's kind of like the, a rescue. That was a critical rescue that if, uh, we didn't get to them in time, you know, they, they would have gone under. Yeah. They came out with their boogie boards and, uh, yeah. the ocean got them. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I'll remember it vividly that, that wa- that wave hit them and those, those boards went flying and then they didn't have their feet on the bottom anymore. And the, the rip took them out. I, I, I guarantee you when they go to the ocean again, they'll have a new appreciation for it, new respect. So nothing's, nothing's lost. Nothing's failed. You always learn. You always learn something. How often would you say you had rescues like multiple in a day or a few in a week? Yeah. So there's, there's kind of like three different things that lifeguards do when they go out, you know, there's rescues, there's warnings. Um, and there's kind of like, I want to say the third one unofficial is like relocation. So, you know, a warning is when you go out, you know, you, you leave the tower and, and basically, you know, you, you want to advise a group that, you know, they're coming near rip current. So, you know, I go out with the paddle board and like, you know, the ocean will move these people and they don't even know, like they'll, they'll enter the water at one location and five, 10 minutes later, they don't even know that they're 25 meters North or South. It's kind of like definitely had that happen to me. Yeah. Like, I mean, people, people don't realize when they go to the ocean, you know, the, the brain turns off, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. You're in this unpredictable, very dangerous environment. You see the lifeguards. So you kind of automatically assume you're going to be okay. Um, but yeah, so basically, you know, you'll go, you'll do a warning or you'll relocate a group of people and you'll like, you'll push them north of a rip current, or you'll push them south of a rip current. And, you know, so you'll read, so you got to keep your people tight every once in a while, you'll get a straggler over the radio. You don't say you're going out for a rescue. You never say that. Cause you don't know if it's going to be a rescue. You don't know if you're going to relocate someone. Um, usually just say you're going out for a warning. And basically, you know, if you go out for a warning, it can turn into a rescue because by the time you got to that person, you're going to warn or relocate. They're in a vulnerable area or the rip current got them. That's happened to me a bunch of times. But yeah, that's kind of the nature of the game. You're going to go out, you're going to try and relocate the people, keep the people, you know, in a safe area, educate, you know, the visitors to the beach um, and go from there. And then, you know, sometimes just if you don't have time, if you see if something just escalated, you just you just let the main tower know you're out. You don't even exp- you don't even tell them what it is. You just say I'm out. You need to go tower three's out, and then the main tower guard will look at you and see where you're running and see the situation that you're um, going to assess. You're not with a lifeguard throughout the day, but is there sort of a culture among the lifeguards? I mean, do they do they hang out after work, or is it more of a solitary lifestyle? Oh, it's 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 community to the max. And that's kind of the best part about it. It is a community unlike any other. Everyone's fit. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's got smiles on their face. Like I said earlier, everyone's that's there that's want to be there. Um, yeah, we, you know, we will go after work and, and have a few beers or, you know, we will go ha- on our breaks. We'll, we'll, we'll work out together. We'll surf together. And, you know, as I mentioned before, before we started the podcast, it's a, it's a very basic if you think of it from the outside, it's a very basic hunter gatherer job where our tools are, are still very primitive. There's not much technology that goes into lifeguarding, you know, in terms of like, you know, our, I think our highest form of technology is the XM FM radio in, in the Tacoma and the rescue vehicles. But, you know, our, our, our rescue tools are very primitive, rescue boards, uh, cannon fins. But yeah, the community is great because as I said earlier, you know, 
if you have your cell phone in the tower, you know, it's grounds for termination. You, you want to keep that thing as far away as you can as possible. And, you know, the iPhones are addicted these days. You know, they're addicting these days. So it's really nice to turn off your phone for eight hours. I left mine in my car. And when you do that, you, co- you kind of come back to like, you know, what, what the world I say should be. You know, you, you actually have real conversation and the person in front of you is your main attention. It's, it's your main point. You know, you don't have your phone in your pocket. You don't have it on the table. You are engaging in real traditional conversation with enlightened analytical people. And I think when you go back to kind of like that primitive job that it is, your community comes tighter. And there's also the other aspect of the, you know, the, the work is very dangerous. We all go through the same training. You know, we all surf. We all swim in the same cold water without a wetsuit. So there's also that element to the bond, kind of a, a, a paramilitary element to the bond that, you know, the outside won't know. So, yeah, it's a very tight community. You know, I've been in my, I've been in lifeguards weddings. Um, you know, and we just, we also hang out on our days off because, you know, we all have the same mindset. We all love the beach. We all love to surf. You know, we all like to stay fit and we all like to talk about things lifeguards talk about, like the best taco or, you know, where should I go in the off season, you know, or, or what's the best route to get to Mexico? What's the best surf spot in Mexico? Where have you guys been around the world? Uh, I hope that answers your question. It's, it's a community unlike any other and the nature of the community makes it even, even tighter. So you don't, you don't walk away with no friends. If you, if you walked away with no friends and you're a lifeguard, you did something very wrong. Yeah. It's, it sounds incredible. It sounds, um, sort of like climbers, but without that, uh, the elitism that they kind of have sometimes. And so yeah. it sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing is in the lifeguard, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a sergeant or a lieutenant or a seasonal, you all wear the blue shirt over the red shorts. So we're all considered equals in one look at it, at one angle. We're all just considered lifeguards. You know, the public doesn't know who's a seasonal, who's a lifeguard too, who's a lieutenant, who's a sergeant. We're just, we're all lifeguards. That's kind of the way it goes. I feel, I feel like the approach is very egalitarian. I think that's the right word. Where, you know, it doesn't matter who goes in the water because we all just have one, one mission in mind. And that's to bring whoever's in, in the water distressed out of the water. So if somebody wanted to get a job as the a lifeguard in San Diego, what, what do they have to do? What's sort of the, is there an application process? I know there's the test, but how do you get to that point? Yeah. So basically just like you go on their career page, uh, civil service, the city of San Diego career page, and you'll see the open application for lifeguard one. It's open for just like any civil service job. It's open. It has a time, a time period. It opens one day and then it'll close like a couple months later. Um, you shoot in your resume. Um, you kind of shoot in your background, um, and then you go in for an interview and then wait. So, excuse me, as I was, uh, you will, you will submit your background, uh, you you'll submit your resume through the website and then you'll be invited to swim the 500 meter, uh, bay swim where you'll swim 250 meters out, 250 meters back in. And this was personally my experience. And then once you pass that 500 meter, then you're eligible for an interview. So then you'll go to the the city worker um at the at the bay that day and it's not you know it's a swim that's open in the water so it's very much that triathlon kicking and negotiating and then you'll go and and you'll schedule your interview and then you will go do your interview either that later that day or sometime during the week and then shortly after that you'll find out if you're hired or not 
Um, and then you will sign up for a lifeguard academy. The city of San Diego is one of the only um, agencies, I believe, that will pay you to go through the academy. So if you get hired before the lifeguard academies, which all take place in March, April, or May before the summer, and um, you go, you go from there. You want to be very strong in the water. You want to be a good paddler. Um, I didn't, I didn't paddle at all before I went to the lifeguard uh, academy. It was a very humbling experience. Um, and you kind of go from there. It's kind of just the whole, and then you get uh, medically cleared and then you go do your onboard documentation, become actually a, an employee of the city of San Diego. You're eligible for 401ks and benefits. Um, and you sign all like you sign all the paperwork. And then before you know it, you go to a lifeguard academy and then, you know, uh, whoever makes it through, you all see each other on day zero or day one, I like to call it for uh, orientation. And then you do all those, like we spoke about earlier, those three tests, uh, ocean quals. So you decided you wanted to be a lifeguard in San Diego. You crushed it. Then what happened next? I know Jackson Hole came at some point. Vermont came at some point. What was the timeline? I entered the lifeguard community to be a uh, firefighter. That was my initial goal. I'm not going to lie. I put all my eggs in one basket and I, you know, I, in the off season, I attended paramedic school Uh, after my first lifeguard season in 2014, I was unemployed until the next season. I was just taking some time off after the military and figuring some stuff out, taking some fire tests. And, um, you know, that since the lifeguard community in San Diego falls underneath San Diego Fire Rescue Department, we fall like under them in a way. So you know, I was kind of using it as a resume booster. Didn't know the profound impact it would have on me um, internally and the love that um, for this job would grow through the roof. So long story short, you know, in October or August of 2017, I got hired by a very good fire company, a very good fire department. I will not, uh, I don't want to name who they are, but they're, they're very prominent in, in uh, Southern California. And um, I got to my midterms for that fire academy and I failed a portion of my midterms. You know, it was just, uh, it was, it was kind of a hard day because I, you know, I, I spent a long time getting to that moment and, you know, they brought me in and they said, here, sign this HR paper. You didn't make the standards and we're releasing you. That was it. You know, it, it was awful because like my mindset back then is like I identified with that failure. I saw it like I was like legitly a failure and I didn't see it as like a learning experience. That was my mindset back then. My mindset's totally different now. And I, I truly believe everything happens for a reason. After I got uh, let go from that fire academy, I went to Jackson Hole pretty much November of 2017. And I spent, you know, I was a ski bum for a year, just kind of clearing my head. You know, I was in, I went to Jackson Hole in the years past. And really, there's something about Jackson that's rough and rugged, unlike, you know, kind of the other resorts in Colorado. It's super cold. It's super expensive. It's super rocky. It's legit a mountain with a tram on it. I worked at a rental shop, a ski tech and a rental shop on the mountain to get the pass and the benefits. And then I also was a barista down the road at a coffee shop. And then my buddy from college and his brother, they invested in a small hotel in uh, Stowe, Vermont. Stowe is one of the prominent ski towns in the East Coast. It's uh, very good skiing. A lot of people come all the way up from Virginia to go skiing there. So they bought this hotel. I also invested in the, in the hotel as a limited partner. I was born in hospitality. My father was a general manager for one of the best hotel companies in the world. And I thought I'd give it a chance. I thought I'd go back and, you know, I'd start fresh, get away from California for a little bit for certain reasons and uh, try something new. And uh, that's where I, I became. I worked under the general manager of the hotel as an assistant. 
and we went from there and I learned kind of like I didn't enter a, a, a full working hotel. I worked, I entered a startup environment. Um, it has its frustrations. It has its, uh, you know, it has its ups and downs, but you know, you learn along the way. I'm not going to lie. Me and my friend who bought the hotel and I, you know, we butted heads a lot, but, uh, our friendship is stronger because of it. And, and that's where I stand right now. I uh, live in Stowe, Vermont, and I'm still a Naval reservist. And, and, and that's where I currently stand. You know, I find myself going to the ocean on the weekends. I really miss surfing. Um, I've surfed New Hampshire and Rhode Island. Um, but we'll see where I stand. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm looking to come back to California. The best part of me right now, and, you know, for anyone who listens, you know, whatever, you know, if you chase a goal like I did with fire, you know, if you fail or not, don't identify with it. You know, don't, don't honker down and, you know, like I did in my studio apartment in California. And I was like, this is it. You know, what, what did I do? You know, just kind of reassess, take a step back, follow your lifestyle that you want to follow. For me, it was a very clean lifestyle. I like to live minimally, but, you know, I also like to stretch my mind analytically and go from there. Don't let those little setbacks. And I may return to lifeguarding this year, but I'm unsure of it. Well, yeah, I was going to ask what the next five years looks like and if seasonal life has a place in it or, you know, how seasonal life will affect your choices. But I think you kind of outlined it a little bit. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm currently on the job hunt right now. You know, the best time to look for a job is when you have a job. Although lifeguarding is always in my heart and always in my soul, it's something I love to do. To make permanent status from my current seat in life right now, I think it'd be a little bit difficult. Some people put in anywhere between four to five to eight to 10 years before they get hired on as a permanent. I don't know if I have that... Um, that in me or if I'm set up really well to do that right now. Um, cause I'd have to move back to California, you know, find a place to live, kind of start up lifeguarding again in March where, you know, um, I start working spring break and the shoulder season in spring, but I'm, you know, I've also realized, you know, I'm a guy that likes to pay for experiences. You know, I'm not a very materialistic guy. I drive a Subaru, a bunch of my t-shirts that I have, I found in the lost and found in the lifeguard tower. And I'd like to pay for experiences. Like I want to go skiing in Jackson hole. You know, I want to take surf trips. I'd love to ski overseas. And that's something I looked at myself in the mirror. I'm like, and financially, am I going to be able to support that lifestyle? So it's one of those things I toss and turn in my head. Civil service is good pay. It pays the bills. You'll never go hungry. But in terms of what I want to do in my life, you know, and those experiences I want to, uh, experience year after year, I, I was looking a little more financial um, stability. Not, I wouldn't say stability, just a little more money just in, in regular old terms. Be able to pay for bigger and crazier experiences. Yeah. And I think that's what it's all about. I had, I, I talked to a friend over Christmas and he worked for, he retired now, but he worked for one of the best diamond jewelers in New York city. And the, the prices he would say, Two million, five million, ten million dollars for a little piece of jewelry, which I don't even know what represents these days. I don't, I don't even know what having something like this on you is worthwhile. You know, you're looking for the likes, are you looking for the validations? Do you live in that social media world where you have to like put yourself out there? But I think at the end of the day, you know, buying an experience is way more cooler than buying an article of clothing, buying a car, buying a ring. I don't like to brag or anything, but I, I have kids one day. I'm not sure of it yet. Or if I run into people, I can say I skied the backcountry of Jackson Hole. 
And to me, that's much more valuable um, than a car I would drive. Yeah, I think that's sort of a mindset, part of the seasonal mindset, not exclusively, but that is uh, a vein that runs in the community is that idea that it's some people refer to it as sort of the dirtbag lifestyle. It's like, I don't, you know, as you said, you got your, some of your t-shirts out of the lost and found. Like I got, I got plenty of stuff I found in the bar lost and found like my raincoats uh, in Alaska, all that stuff. So it's, I don't, I don't need nice stuff. I want experiences. I want to travel. I want to, you know, I'm trying to meet people that have personality traits that I've never even thought possible and have, you know, those experiences. So yeah, I definitely hear you there. It's not like, I mean, don't get me wrong. If I go to a wedding, I'm not going to be showing up in board shorts and uh, rainbow sandals. You know, we will, we will dress when the time's right. But um, like you said earlier, you know, we pay for the experience. We enjoy comfortable things, but we also like living on the edge a little bit and uh, living outside your comfort zone is uh, definitely a theme of being a seasonal. You're not going to make a lot of money. You, you know, you, you may not get a lot of sleep. My days in Jackson Hole were long. You know, I had to get to the mountain, get home for the mountain. That was like a 13, 14 hour day. But the experience you walk away with and the knowledge, you know, you're able to tell someone about Jackson Hole. You know, I, I pride myself that I'm able to tell people about San Diego from Sunset Cliffs all the way up to Black's Beach and where to eat and where to go and how to avoid traffic. You know, that's and when you say that to someone face to face and they don't have to dig their nose into their phone or a Google app, you know, that it's a lot more valuable. It's a lot more personable. It's something I feel like we're missing these days. And the seasonal life kind of keeps that authenticity in the world. It, it, it keeps that, that real human interaction still there. It keeps it alive in a world where we're the most connected. We always seem to be the most disconnected. And in this, in the lifeguard community and the seasonal world, I think we're, we're the most connected community in the world. Honestly. I think I agree with you. I think somewhere in there, it was sort of the idea that the seasonal lifestyle is the cure to some of the modern uh, society's ills is a, is a great point as well. Yeah. I, I mean, it that way. When you're a seasonal lifeguard, you know, I, I don't know what the depression rate is for the lifeguard community, but I, I can honestly put my foot down and say that it's very, very low. You know, it satisfies you in many, many different ways. And it satisfies you that provides basic human needs, you know, being around people, being good at what you're good at, you know, feeling involved, feeling needed, keeps your eye on the prize and, and being a seasonal, you know, lifeguard or a seasonal job anywhere, you know, it puts you in that environment where you're around people, you're contributing, you know, you're, you're doing things that make you happy. You're working out um, as a lifeguard, you're eating healthy. You're, you know, everyone's generally very healthy. You're um, socializing after work, you're socializing during work. And when you, when you have those basic needs filled, like a lot of things go away. A lot of, you know, depression, anxiety, um, normal human emotions that aren't to your asset or, or benefit will, will, will disappear. It's something that, you know, these days I feel like it's just being addressed with a, a prescription. But like you said earlier, seasonal life can be the cure to a lot of life's problems. And you can be a rich guy or a rich girl or just need a break. You know, there's always seasonal jobs. You, you know, just because you're 35, you know, doesn't mean you can't just take a little sabbatical and be a ski bum for a year or, you know, be a lifeguard for a year. And, and like you said in your podcast and this, you know, we, we go out there 
for an internal experience, an internal change. It's not external. It's, it's, it's internal. It's mind and heart and soul. One of the parts of the lifeguard life that you were describing that I have, I've been trying to implement it is disconnecting from the phone and everything for eight hours in a day. I've been, I've been trying to do one day a week without screens you know, now that I've got the, that the magazine's coming out soon, it's, it's kind of hard to pull off, but man, it's, it's necessary. <laughs> it's really necessary. I think just to, you know, like you said, get your mind in the right, right place where you're not, you know, you're in the real world again. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, I own an alarm clock. I turn my phone off at night. I know it's kind of risky. No one really has landlines these days. Um, but the other day, you know, uh, Saturday, I, I went to Ocean Beach to surf and I, I honestly declared it a screen free morning. The only thing I had in my pocket was my car keys and my wallet. And, and if you just are able to disconnect and just leave your phone at home, like I know it's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard for everybody. But when you leave your phone at home, and like you said earlier, just a caveat, you're just in the moment. Like you're not, you're not worrying about a buzz in your phone. You're not, you know, you, it's, it's, it's addicting. I take it out all the time. I hate it. And I just, it was a really calming, nice morning where I surfed. I got out of the water. I brought a book. I journaled in one of the coffee shops I really love in Ocean Beach. Um, I just drank coffee. I sat there. I took it all in. And it's really surprising. Once that phone is like away from you and off, and mine was miles away from me, you really are in the moment, you know? And when you talk to someone, like I said earlier, when we're in the lifeguard break, you talk to someone and that phone isn't on you, you know, you're really engaged. The only thing you're concentrated on is that person and the conversation. And it becomes genuine. And the person you're talking to knows it becomes genuine. And a, and a part of you is revealed. Because when that phone's on your pocket, even when it's on the table, you know, it's still a distraction. You know, with my ex-girlfriend, I always try to make a point that when we were out to dinner, you know, I'd leave my phone at home. You know, because I, I wanted that person to be the, my main concentration that night. I wanted to make them feel like you're, the, you're my number one priority right now. And it doesn't have to be with girlfriends and relationships. It could be with friends. It could be with your, you know, your parents. I love turning my phone off all day on Christmas because I'm with all the people I, I technically need to be with, right? Like, I mean, if something's going to go wrong, you know, I'm going to be there. And anyone who listens to this, I, you know, I highly, I highly recommend it. And a seasonal life is uh, one way to get out of that technology world. Do you have a book that you think every human should read? Uh, I would say Tribe. Tribe by Sebastian Junger and Mindset by Carol S. Dweck. I believe these two books are life-changing. I believe these books will, will take people's view of the world and what they think they need and what they actually need and surface those answers. I know those two books have changed my life in, in, in many ways. Maybe not changed my life, but actually helped me make me think of what I thought was right, made me think of what you know is right. Sebastian Junger is a great is a great author. He wrote The Perfect Storm, but he writes this book Tribe and it brings it, it just brings the basic human needs to surface again. It, it it I feel like it's it has the answers to a lot of the world's problems in terms of like depression, anxiety, loneliness. I feel like if anyone read this book Tribe, they can actually get a, a lot a lot of those elements in their life, if they're in your life, out of it, without a prescription. And then the Carol S. Dweck's uh, bike, my, uh, Mindset, 
book, um, the new psychology of success can just totally switch your mindset on, um, you know, I think the, the crux of her book is failure and how you look at failing. And, um, you know, I used to surf a lot and, 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 and think, uh, surfing was an ego booster for me. You know, I tried to out surf maybe my lifeguard friends or, but now I just surf as a learning experience. And I don't care if I fall down five, six, seven times, I get crushed. I don't see it as failing anymore. I see it as learning. And uh, that's the biggest takeaway I got back from uh, Dr. Dweck's book. So I, I, sorry, that, that question had to be uh, two books, not one. No, I, my answer is always two books too. That competitiveness, I can hear it. I grew up even, I don't know, probably, probably five, four or five years ago was when I finally took the foot off the gas of the competitiveness. And, you know, growing up, it was always my friends were like, oh, you're so competitive. It's a bad thing. And I was like, no, this is, this is what separates me from everybody else. I'm always trying to compete. Like, it, you know, I think everybody should. I, always, I say it, it was my first brush with ayahuasca that kind of changed it for me. But I think it was just it, coincidental at the same time. But I, yeah, I realized like competitiveness for competitiveness's sake isn't shouldn't be the goal. It's, you know, bettering you and the people around you learning lessons, like you said, and maybe competing against yourself is the point of it, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I'm all about being competitive and everything like that, but when it gets like over the top and, and more importantly, like when you identify with those successes or failures and they overwhelm you, that's, I think where, you know, you have to take a step back, you know, it's all, it's all great. I mean, that the lifeguard relays that each year at the end of each summer, that is one of the most competitive, eager, cut, you know, ruthless environments, you know, that, <laughs> that can happen. Um, you know, it, it's bracking rights for the whole year versus all four districts. But at the end of the day, you know, we go to a bar in OB and we're all equals again. It doesn't really matter who the champion is. All we know is we had a good time. We left it all on the beach. We don't, I don't identify with the mug I got, the championship mug in 2015. I'm very proud to have it. And I don't identify with the failures of the other years. I lost the relay, uh, the lifeguard relays. Um, just one of those things, you know, you, you have the competitiveness, but you know, you, it's not who you are. You know, you're not your failures. You're not your successes. Those are just things that happen to you. You know, I, I like to say at the end of the day, you know, I'm not a lifeguard. You know, I'm not a relationship that ended. You know, I'm not the F I got on my test. I'm just Stefan Simkovics, also known as Sims. You know, I like to just kind of just hopefully just be a good dude and, and, you know, do what's right at the end of the day. You know, I'm not perfect, nor will I ever will be, but uh, I'll never stop learning from my successes and more importantly, my failures. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, Stefan. It's really, it was an excellent episode, I think. No problem, Joey. I was really happy to do it. And hopefully, you know, someone, even if it's just one person, just gets something out of it. That's all. That's all it is. Yeah. That's it. That's the episode. The seasonals are Kelly Mogg, Ryan Deininger, me, Joey Ravinsky. The theme song by Ryan Deininger, Joe Williams, Louis Leva, Chappie, Thomas Hamilton. Follow us on Instagram at the seasonals underscore. Like us on Facebook. Listen to our next episode. That's it. We're out. Yeah.